they use that phrase all the time when they talk about it, uh, the American dream, and, it, and it's about you know getting rich quick and, and, and being able to make a fortune. Uh, but it's also a kind of dark commentary on the American dream as well. So you've got both. Uh, you know, it, it, it appeals to those who want to believe in it, uh, even though the novel seems to ultimately undermine our confidence in it. Uh, Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited because not only do we we get to talk all things Great Gatsby and the Roaring Twenties in this episode, but I'm also joined by Dr. Nallen. Thank you so much for joining me here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so your recent edition of The Great Gatsby, published by Broadview Press, just came out right? 2022. Second edition. Um, second edition. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was, but only, uh, it just come out in the United States. It wasn't, it wasn't for sale in the United States, uh, because of copyright, different copyright laws in Canada than the U S. So. Ah, okay. So the Canadians were lucky to have gotten the great Gatsby earlier I like as a Broadview edition. <laughs> That's right. So Let's start with the public domain issue, which is really exciting because I know you said you were speaking a lot about The Great Gatsby now being in the public domain. And right, I guess for our listeners, the main thing with it being in the public domain is you can get free editions of The Great Gatsby, yeah, right? Or is there more to it? No, I think that's basically it is that, uh, you know, now, now any, any company can publish it. So, uh, and I, I spoke on NPR last January because they were talking about it having come in the public domain and interviewing some of the of, of us who've done editions. And I think uh, there's a Penguin edition. I think there's a new Norton Critical edition. Uh, say my edition had been available in Canada and the UK since 2007 uh, mm. because there's different uh, uh, the, the, the different rules about what constitutes uh, the time it takes to get in the public domain. But uh, um, now there's going to be several editions. So this was a good occasion to uh, revise, update, uh, expand my edition and, and get it uh, selling in the United States for uh, university students. I and mean, that's the main target of Broadview text there. So yeah, uh, and um, just I know listeners won't be able to see this, but we do here have a Patreon now. So we actually released the video footage. Um, which is a reason to become a Patreon member, but just so those with the video and we'll take a screenshot for the podcast, but this is Dr. Nowland's edition of The Great Gatsby. And I see some wire, um, it looks like spectacles. Are those supposed to be Dr. Oh, TJ? Yeah, that, go ahead. That's a car wheel. That's, oh, that's, that's a car wheel. This is, this is a, uh, a photograph by Paul Strand. 
from 1917. So he was, he's a modernist photographer. I think he was uh, associated with Alfred Stieglitz. So it was really a, a, a good, we, we thought it was a really apt photograph for the edition, which it's been, it was there on the first edition as well because of the importance of the automobile in The Great Gatsby, right? So, oh, and, I and see. From, a, from, from a strange angle, that's why you're, you're wondering what that is. It's yeah, a, well, a, that's the thing is on the top, it yeah. looks like a spectacle or glass. So when I yeah, saw the glass, <laughs> I just saw Dr. Eckelberg. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I think it's the, it was it was the automobile, but again from a, an unusual angle. And, but and I first, like that double meaning, and yes, yeah, the automobile yeah, is yeah, such a reflection, and uh, yeah, the, yeah. But things are falling apart, and you know, maybe we'll start with why is the Great Gatsby such a cultural phenomenon? It's I feel like it's making not only the public domain brought it back, but it just is always a um, constantly referred uh, text yeah. in America. Well, I think it's you know largely because I mean it's a great novel, but it's it's a short novel, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it has the simplicity. It has a, I, I think the phrase I always use is very deceptive simplicity. It has the <laughs> simplicity of a myth. Uh, uh, it's kind of a fable, you know, the 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 poor boy who falls in love with the rich girl and uh, does this, you know reinvents himself so that he's got the you know the most lavish mansion on Long Island and throws these wild parties uh, but it's all ultimately to recapture the love of this girl who was uh, out of his league uh, you know and we learn about the past how how he was able to actually uh, get close to her you know, that all that all stemmed from the war experience of course where, you know, the soldiers were all equal more or less <laughs> uh, but I think it's that that simplicity there's a simple fairly simple love story there you know the boy the poor boy chases the rich girl and of course ultimately loses her to the, the rich boy uh, almost steals him away or sorry steals her away uh, but is is uh, you know loses the girl in the end and and I think that's and it's you know depending on your edition anywhere from 120 to 180 pages uh, so uh, you know university students who don't, some like to read a lot. Some don't like to read a lot. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna uh, be happy to, happy to read that. Say than a uh, you know great expectations, which is five hundred pages. This is uh, one hundred and eighty pages. But and, and it's it's a novel that uh, I, you know I've been teaching it for years and years at every level. Most students really enjoy it. Uh, but it's also you know I say there's a deceptive simplicity, but uh, you know it's it, it it's got these beautiful passages in it where you can with these these sort of lyrical passages. Uh, with rich metaphors that you can talk about uh, as, as a teacher. There, there's symbolism, sometimes a little heavy-handed, you know, I mean, some people find the T.J. Eckelberg thing just a little bit too obvious as a symbol, but, uh, you know, others find, because, because they're kind of obvious, they like that. I, I, I think, I, I remember talking to an older colleague once, he said, I remember when I was a young student, that was one of the first great books I got, you know, I mean, that, that was the way he put it, yeah. uh, you know, oh, I can see, you, you start to see patterns of symbols uh, and, and, a, and a larger kind of meaning about America, uh, the American dream, you know, emerging out of this seemingly simple tale about the, uh, the, the, okay, the poor boy courting the rich girl who's uh, beyond him. Uh, so I think that's part of the appeal. And of course it is dealing with these, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a myth in a way, uh, that phrase American dream evokes a kind of myth, uh, even though that phrase actually wasn't around when Fitzgerald wrote it, it kind of comes out a little bit later. Uh, uh, I think somebody uses it around 1931 or so. I know Sarah Churchwell talks about this in her book, Careless People, but 
I, they, they, students certainly use that phrase all the time when they talk about it, uh, the American dream. And, it, and it's about you know, getting rich quick and, and, and being able to make a fortune. Uh, but it's also a kind of dark commentary on the American dream as well. So you've got both. Uh, you know, it, it, it appeals to those who want to believe in it, uh, even though the novel seems to ultimately undermine our confidence in it. Uh, of course, in an, it, 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 I, I, I see the mode of the book really as romantic irony. Uh, we cannot help but believe in what we know will, we, will, will be a failure. Uh, so it, it, it appeals to both uh, that, that sense that we're, we're reading something that inspires us, appeals to us, but we also it also has that kind of dark commentary uh, about you know failure and disillusionment, uh, which which lends it a kind of heaviness as well or seriousness, I suppose. Right. So I think those are some of the things. I mean, you know, I was talking about money, uh, class, uh, and, and the the. the um, the, the tyranny of the rich uh, in in the United States that the, and, and the, uh, the, the the you think you can make it you think you can kind of reinvent yourself but ultimately uh, if they want to stop you up they will uh, and and I say you know in my book we deal we're doing more and more with race in the Great Gatsby of course that's a kind of a hot topic these days I'm I'm not sure a lot of people saw that for a long time it seems to have become a bigger topic over the last thirty years and I'm um, interested. Yeah, and sexuality. With my students, we spend a lot of time with that elevator photographer scene. Oh, yeah, that yeah. happens. And yeah. how Nick just ends up in bed, like in this bed, and there's the photographer putting his underwear on. That's right, yeah. And, you know, so the, the, those kinds of scenes, and, and some students want to pursue that, some don't. Uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the books, I, I guess the other thing that makes it so it's such a cultural phenomenon, it's very easy to reread. Mm -hmm. And you know, even when I was, you know, proofreading it for the, the, this new edition, you always see something more in it. Uh, uh, whether a detail like that one, which just, you know, escaped a lot of people, they don't think much of it, uh, the sort of racial details that, but, and, and nuances of language that are uh, uh, always there to be discovered, you know, every, every time you read it. Uh, um, it's, it's very funny. I mean, this is another mm -hmm. thing about, there's a lot of the book, and, and you know, Fitzgerald, was seen as a satirist uh, by a lot of people. It, it, this was his third novel, and and he he'd written a satirical play, which isn't that funny, uh, which he'd hoped would make him a fortune. But there, there's a you know I think the scene I always think is worth reading again is, you know, Gatsby's guest list at the beginning of chapters four, chapter four or five. It almost doesn't belong with the rest of the novel, but it's just hilariously funny, right? <laughs> Where Nick just gives this deadpan description of all these characters that come there. So, and again, that's another example. But yeah, the scene in the bedroom, which raises questions about uh, uh, Nick's ambiguous sexuality and, 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 and his relationship with Jordan Baker. I, I don't make too much of that myself, but some do. And it's, and it's the kind of novel that invites that, you know, these, these different paths. It, it, all, it, raises, it raises all kinds of questions, mm -hmm. little details that they're they're not things aren't always spelled out it's 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 elliptical in a lot of ways and 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 of course he was quite uh taken when he was reading writing just before he wrote it he was he was a huge fan of the wasteland you know it was he, he and, and and uh he wrote t.s Eliot. you know this is the greatest poem of, of our day but one of the things he 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 does borrow from in the way is that that use of um you know sort of parataxis just putting in images side by side without commenting on them, right? Uh, you and know, you talk so. about the Valley of the Ashes, right? And yeah, yeah. how, like, your intro is so illuminating. And what I didn't really know was how much he relied on T.S. Eliot for poetic inspiration. And yeah, it comes through. 
Yeah, certainly some of it. Yeah, and again, the Valley of Ashes is quite an obvious, what you know, kind of a homage to the wasteland. But yeah, just a little. Because um, of course, he was always inspired by poetry. He liked the the, the British Romantic poets, and he and he was uh, you know before the twenties, he was taken. He was really into um, some of the, some of the more contemporary British poets that we don't read as much anymore. And you know, novelists, but yeah, he really got taken by Eliot. I just there's a lot of details that uh, re, um, recall Eliot. I say the the way the the, the ash heaps is, is fairly obvious but I, I you know like when he um he's driving they're driving across the bridge and they see that car with these african-americans being driven by a white chauffeur and then you and you also see a a um a hearse uh with these sad european faces and there's not much commentary it's just image 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 you know and then nick says anything could happen uh even gatsby could happen so there's I think he borrowed, he, he's doing some of the things that Elliot was doing. Here's an image, here's an image, here's a not, not much commentary. Uh, and, and the other thing I noticed, especially when, uh, you know, when, when I was first uh, putting the manuscript together and you're really reading it word by word and reading it against the original text, uh, some of the dialogue, uh, especially in chapter two, uh, you know, the same chapter that has, you know, suddenly Nick is, uh, standing by the bed of this guy who's in his undershirt, and 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 again, there's been this ellipses beforehand. We don't know what's happened, but mm -hmm. some of the dialogue in there kind of recalls. I think it's the third part of the wasteland that that um, uh, uh, the hurry up, please, it's time. You, you've got the, you've got the voices talking about uh, uh, the warriors. You know, there, there's a, I mean, one of the things that he did, of course, Hemingway does this too in the Sunset Horizon, which is very hard to do. It's very hard to write dialogue where people aren't saying anything. Just, just like you know, they're they're all drinking and they're just blathering and 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 conversations don't actually connect with one another or anything like yeah. that. He does that really well. But but one of the things that really struck me when I was reading it closely for the sake of reading it is there's a rhythm to it. There's really quite a rhythm you start to hear as you follow, and it's the rhythm that's almost more important than the fact that they're often not saying much. But uh, some of what they're saying is actually quite funny. I mean, he really had a, had a good ear for. For voices, these vernacular voices, right? So yeah, they're almost sketches, a la Damon Runyon, if you remember that satirist, where Guys and Dolls is based off of Damon Runyon's yeah, stories, yeah. um, which has always surprised me why The Great Gatsby has never been a musical, because I feel like it fits that format very well. I, I can't imagine someone won't try it. Soon, you know? but, but you do just... mention a lot of cultural adaptations right it was it's been a ballet which i would love yeah. to see um yeah. an opera and then um yeah, none of that i've seen yeah. I, I mean i learned a lot of that from uh there's jackson Breyer, who's a, who's a great fitzgerald scholar he he's uh written a recent essay for a, a cambridge companion we're putting out uh we're looking at uh, adaptations of gatsby over the last 20 years so so i mean unless you're living in washington dc or in new york you're not gonna have much of a chance to see these unless they you know become big enough that they're uh, the other people putting them on, but uh, it, it is surprising in light of what you're saying that they haven't adapted to a musical, um, but they've adapted it. Uh, you know, there, there's been a, um, I think it's a eight or ten hour theater version where they simply read the read the text. It's called Gats. It's by an avant-garde troupe from New York, I think. Because have you heard of this, the Elevator Company? Or no, well, like I read that? about that from your intro, but I know in New York. I don't know if it's in premiering yet, but I saw they were casting for a new Great Gatsby play, but it's oh. going to be next to, it's going to be in repertoire. So the same cast in the Great Gatsby, 
I think will be the same cast in Hamlet. It's very wow. Interesting. Wow. interesting. So they're kind of like just doing this doubling. Well, you know, it, it was adapted into a play in 1926. So oh, right, wow. after, right, right after the novel came out, uh, Fitzgerald uh, sold it to, uh, to Broadway. I, I, I don't know, sold to Broadway. I'm not sure how this works, but uh, it did get adapted into a play. Uh, Owen something. I can't remember the fellow's name that wrote it. Uh, so, and then there was a movie made of it in 1926, which has been lost. Uh, so it's oh, no. the first of four movies, right? Because then you have the Alan Ladd movie, in the, which is a kind of gangster movie in the, I think it's the late 40s, early 50s. And then you had the, when I was a kid, the Mia Farrow. And in fact, my first copy of The Great Gatsby was the one with Robert Redford and Mia Farrow on the cover of it, because I, I, I preferred going to movies than reading books. But if I, if I read the book, my stepfather would take me to the movie. It was kind of a oh. deal. That I, I there you go. <laughs> but, and that's uh, a great version. I mean, well, I taught The Great Gatsby in the fall and I had my students, I split them in two and half would compare scenes from the Mia Farrow and Redford version. And then half would see the Leonardo DiCaprio. And it is so interesting. I think both stand on their own, but one, yeah, one is so zany. Like the newest one, we just kept thinking of it as a comic strip because it really does feel like a comic strip the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I, uh, I kind of warmed to it a bit. I I want I saw it because it was in 3D initially. And I, I, oh, I, I'm yeah. curious about 3D, but I don't go to superhero movies and that. So I thought it was a perfect opportunity for me to see it. So I kind of liked it, just the technology of it. Um, and then I watched, I watched again. It's it's pretty good, but I, you know, I don't think one of the Fitzgerald really adapts that well. Like from my perspective, I think one of the things that always gets lost in the film adaptations is the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's what makes Fitzgerald Fitzgerald in many ways, I think, is his, is, is his language. Uh, and, and so it's, it, it's kind of ironic because he loved the movies. So, I mean, he, he says some disparaging things about the movies when he was frustrated in the middle of the 30s. And he went to work for Hollywood and he, and he definitely had a hard time writing screenplays. He just couldn't quite master that, uh, even though he tried. Uh, but, there, but there's something very cinematic about his novels, right? I mean, a lot of cinematic imagery and you've got film stars uh, wandering at Gatsby's parties. Uh, but I, I still feel like watching the movie uh, you know, you can try to create this look of the jazz age and, and, and uh, yeah, as I say, both those movies have quite a unique look to them, but there's something a little stilted when they speak those. those great, well, the accents too, I think are one of the yeah. hardest and for, well, for me. Yeah. Well, and something that's really unique is you also have edited the age of innocence, which yeah. I was surprised that, Fitzgerald didn't turn to Edith Wharton. Like, was he not an Edith Wharton reader? Oh, I think he was. No, I oh. think he was actually. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how well he knew *The Age of Innocence*, um, but uh, he's. I think he must have certainly known the *The House of Mirth* and and the custom of the country. I mean, he speak. I, he has. He, he. I mean, one of the things I wanted to show in my introduction is that he read a lot, or you know, maybe sometimes superficially, but he read like a writer reads. Like, what? What? What's everyone else doing? And certainly Zelda. Uh, would have read Edith Wharton. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's kind of, and, and, and he's certainly writing the same kind of stories as Edith Wharton. Like if you think of the country of the, uh, sort of the, the custom of the country, uh, that's about a social climber. Uh, you know, this, this um, uh, what's her name again? Um, uh, she has kind of a mythical name. I it's, somehow it's escaping me, but uh, Undine, Undine oh, Sprague. Okay. And she's a vulgar social climber from from the Midwest, and she ends up 
you know, making it into upper New York society and then even ends up in, in France. And it's, it's, a, it's a success story for her, but uh, she's, she, because she's so ruthless. Um, but he, he must have he, known those, those novels and maybe The House of Mirth. And, and of course, again, she's writing magazine fiction all the time, Glimpses of the Moon, uh, which is her, the first novel she published after, I think the second novel she published after The Age of Innocence, uh, Glimpses of the Moon is about a young couple that uh, is trying to keep together, but they, I think they both make some kind of deal where they can have other partners, kind of like Henry Jamesy kind of thing. And uh, they were going to do a movie of it, and Scott and Zelda were, were considered as possible. Oh, wow. In that. So, so he's familiar with that. I mean, the other right, he's, he's he, he, I think, really indebted to Willa Cather, too, right? Mm. Uh, mm. And particularly my Antonia, and, and he, he, he says that in some of his letters. But I think he called. He he does say something very positive about Edith Wharton in a in a review, some of his early reviews. But he calls her um, someone fighting the good fight with Bronze Age weapons. So in other words, uh, I take that to mean kind of old fashioned stylistically. Uh, but I think he definitely took her uh, seriously as a novel and and yeah. and say it kind of writes in the tradition of the so you know the sort of social realist novel really loosely understood as such. Right? And the satire and, she, and well, I asked. Thank yeah, you. Definitely that. She's yeah, very, yeah. She's too right so yeah uh, yeah i've never seen him comment on the age of innocence which i think is not only wharton's greatest novel but really one of the great american novels i, I reread that last i hadn't read it for about 10 years and i thought oh my god this is almost a perfect novel for what it's, what she's doing there um, yeah well and he, you really satisfied my edith wharton fanaticism because <laughs> i'm such an edith wharton fan but also i taught um the house of mirth before the great gatsby and lily right is born into money but then falls and gatsby it's the complete opposite so they're actually crossing paths in a way yeah, that's right yeah she suits you know again another if you read Fitzgerald's second novel the beautiful and damned mm. uh, which which has got all kinds of flaws in it uh, but it, it's interesting especially if you like this Fitzgerald, but that's a little closer to a Edith Wharton novel too, right? And he's and then that's about characters who are born wealthy and end up sort of uh, uh, um, they're sort of waiting around for a rich uncle yeah. to die, that kind of thing, and 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 uh, end up kind of down and out. And it's almost like a Theodore Dreiser novel where they're kind of at some they're barely barely surviving at one point. Uh, but that's a little, and, and I think I, um, I, I read a master's paper here. I was a reader on it anyways, where this student was comparing the House of Mirth and Beautiful and Damned. Oh, wow. that, that made okay. sense to me that, that it's so similar. But, but you know, again, he's, the, Edith Ward is an extremely successful writer, uh, writing in the top magazine. She was published by Scribner. So Fitzgerald's following that kind of stuff. He's really knows, you know, you know uh, who's, who are the successful magazine writers? That's really what mm -hmm. he was. Uh, and, and and what are they doing that's right what kind of stories are they telling so yeah and I think that something that's really intriguing to me is how um much F. Scott Fitzgerald and Edith Wharton or maybe what I gravitate towards is more of their queer or even when they subvert themes like I really love F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby for that just how tragedy manifests his story, Babylon Revisited, which I think is so wonderful. Um, and yeah, and that's why I actually prefer The House of Mirth to The Age of Innocence is because I think it's um, so ambiguous and murky and it's not tightly bound. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And again, Edith Wharton had a lot of literature that didn't make it. Like she wrote a lot of erotic literature. And well, that's stuff she never published, yeah. though, right? Because she wrote. She, I mean, we we discovered that later in in uh, after after she died that she she had written some yeah some wildly erotic stuff, but I don't think she ever published that. Mm-mm. No, no. Well, and, and she wrote those erotic letters. Like she wrote all those letters to her lover. Mar- oh yeah, the fair. Uh, like she was forty seven years old, I think, and and he was having an affair with various women and men. And he was quite a character. Oh yeah. Character. He was bisexual. And, yeah. And, and Henry yeah. James. So, so, and she wrote some really wild letters to, to him. And so those all came to light, I think in, uh, maybe it was at R.W. Lewis's biography or mm, been, I think you're right. Wolf, but uh, yeah. So yeah, she was, but that, I don't think people knew that side of Edith Wharton except, except for her close friends, obviously like, you know, Fullerton and, and say Henry James was a good confidant uh, and, and maybe some of her other, you know, she had lots of male friends, uh, many of whom were gay. Uh, uh, so she, you know, she had, she, you know, had, had a, a very interesting life. In, in, in yeah. Well, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, they had a lot of bohemian. Well, there's a reason why Edith Wharton spent more time in Paris than she did in New York and actually did not want to be around society. And yeah, no, she, she wanted yeah. to live in France. Yeah. I mean, she, she basically, and she was, uh, she, you know, she, she got honored uh, after world war one for the work that she did with Belgian refugees, but she really made her home in France. Uh, she might've, I understand that she might've uh, stayed in England before the war. I can't, I, I remember hearing somebody who knew more about this than I do, but talking about, uh, and the, the, the element of chance that it had to end up in France, but she, yeah, she had no desire to come back to the United States and, and, and kind of said her farewell in a way in the, in, in, um, uh, the age of innocence. But, uh, and I say, yeah, I think Fitzgerald, you know, he spent what, uh, about seven, eight years in, in Europe. And, and, uh, and that's, you know, that's where people were going because that's where that, so that's where the good writers were. That's where, and again, a lot of social sexual experimentation, uh, um, if you know, if you, I, I, I think Fitzgerald was not that much an experimenter, but he was around people who were. I mean, you know, they certainly knew there was a bohemian scene around them, around Hemingway. I mean, they all knew that, right? So it was, uh, yeah, uh, which always surprises and, uh, me with Hemingway. Maybe that's just because I still need someone to convince me to read Hemingway, but <laughs> there's something with Hemingway. I think Hemingway's. If you're if you're interested in sort of you know the, sort of what we call generally queerness in writers, I think Hemingway is, is more interesting in that regard than Fitzgerald. If you read The Garden of Eden, and, and uh, see that's and, the thing is I haven't read the right text. I need to read. I need to stay made, away from Farewell to Arms. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sunnels Arises is fascinating because because really early on in the novel, he, he when he goes and he's Brett, there, Brett's in a gay bar. Uh, oh, and, really? And, and, and oh, absolutely. Early on, and 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 you know, the hero goes in there and he. So he's he's going to these places. I mean, he's being the kind of tough guy, and I I, oh, I had to get out of here. This all disgusted me, and all that kind of. But that's he's frequenting these kind of places, and he's and Brett certainly is. I mean, the woman they're all following around, who's um, kind of androgynous, anyways. Okay. Uh, the, 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 that that aspect of Hemingway's there early. It's not as much in Farewell to Arms. You're right, but I think again, you look at the Garden of Eden and, and some of the yeah. some of the stories. I think he was more. I mean, he was quite fascinated by by lesbianism, certainly, and of course he was. Mm. Uh, you know Hemingway uh, uh, you know learned quite a lot from Gertrude Stein uh, early on as, as so so I think I think Fitzgerald was a little warier I mean for um, of um, let's say lack of a better word queerness even though of course Hemingway used to, you know Hemingway uh, describes Fitzgerald in those terms I mean in in, in um, a movable feast he talks about drinking with Fitzgerald. He's, you know, Fitzgerald, uh, you know, he, he, he was really pretty if you looked at him too. I can't remember what the exact, exact phrase is, but it's, he's kind of feminizing him and, 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 and hmm. noting it, but then also kind of ridiculing it. I mean, there's always this kind of edge to it. Yeah. Uh, but he does sort of hint that there was something kind of feminine and, and, and uh, uh, potentially attractive, sort of dangerously attractive. Yeah. Uh, about Fitzgerald kind of like how Nick fetishizes Jay Gatsby in a, in a way I mean you could there there is um it's very homoerotic but even kind of homo like internalized what we would call now internalized homophobia like afraid of that attraction possibly yeah I mean I, I don't tend to read it that way myself but I see I can see how you can I mean there's definitely a um uh, yeah, you know, I, I I can't remember who writes about sort of homosociality. You know, there's a, there's a, there's 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 a, there's a sort of bond. I mean, he, Daisy's kind of the link between them, right? I mean, it's Nick that kind of gets Daisy and and facilitates the relationship that he then takes this kind of hmm. voyeuristic hmm. interest in. And I suppose there's a kind of it's like a triangulation in a way. It's triangular, yeah. Very interesting. And I, I, well, I suppose you could the way the way Fitzgerald Fitzgerald was really attracted to Hemingway. There's no question about that. Mm. Again, whether, you know, in a, in a you know, homoerotic in a very general way, I think. And in fact, I think um, you know Zelda would accuse them of of being gay lovers. And this was you know when they were all having fights and you know yelling <laughs> at each other. They're always drinking a lot and fighting, and 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 that would be an um, she would level that as an accus accusation, right? So. And he was quite sensitive to that. I mean, I don't, I don't think there was any uh, evidence of any kind of homosexual relation, but there, but there was certainly an attraction. There was, you know, Fitzgerald tended to hero worship somewhat, right? And, and you know, he, having, Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald uh, uh, didn't end up seeing combat during World War I. Uh, you know, as I say, one of the things about the great Gatsby that's a little bit unrealistic, it seems to me, is that Nick is supposed to have gone over to war and seen combat. And, and you would think that he's kind of a shell-shocked soldier, but he doesn't actually really show too many signs of that, except there's this kind of um, cold irony. There's a colder irony that, that's an effect of the war, the way that, you know, that that cold irony manifests itself in Hemingway as well. Of course, Hemingway never saw much combat either. Uh, I mean, he was hit by a mortar shell when he was working for the Red Cross, which would be a horrible experience. I, don't, I think that would traumatize most of us, but he never actually saw combat, but later on he, he bought this Italian uh, army uniform and, and did go around starting telling stories about his experience on the Italian front, 
which he turned into, eventually turned into Farewell to Arms. And Fitzgerald was one of the first true believers. When he met him, he, he thought all this was true and was really quite taken by it, right? So there's, there was, he liked that kind of, you know, macho soldier in Hemingway, uh, who was also the writer as well, the tough guy. And when you see Heming when you see Fitzgerald using profanity in his letters, uh, which he doesn't use a lot, often in letters to Hemingway, you know, trying mm -hmm. trying to trying to be tough like him, uh, and use this salty language. Uh, so, uh, but it, but it's Hemingway, in fact, you know, who kind of created this macho persona, the soldier and the austere writer. Uh, the more and more we know about him, it's quite possible that he was uh, bisexual or or had. Um, homoerotic longings that were displaced you know he displaced in many ways there, well that's what i think it is is i just always associate him with this rugged aesthetic but yeah i think i think that's changed a lot since the publication of the garden of eden and a new biography and more revelations when was that published that was 1987 so that was 25 years after his death so oh, and it's okay. published in a very truncated form so the whole novel which is a mess and much bigger uh, that 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 didn't get um, uh, that that's still never been published, and there's a lot of criticism about what the editors did to kind of make that into a more typical Hemingway novel. But it does certainly reveal a a, uh, a side of Hemingway who it was certainly oh um, well, I, I don't want to say certainly because I don't know what actually goes on in people's private lives, but there's certainly grounds for speculating that he was into what we think of today as kinky sex. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was very open. It seems role playing, role playing, I guess you know. With, yeah. Uh, and that comes across in in, in uh, the Garden of Eden, which of course the Garden of Eden owes a lot to Scott Fitzgerald's Tender as the Night. I think. I mean, that's, mm. I, and, you know, Hemingway tended to disparage Tender as the Night uh, at that point. He and and, and uh, Fitzgerald's friendship. I mean, it had sort of peaked and then was going through some rough spots, and they 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 weren't close very close toward the end of Fitzgerald's life, but. Uh, the Garden of Eden, you, you can certainly get a sense that he was going to rework the, the Tender as the Night story. He, he was more indebted to Fitzgerald than he yeah. went on. And of course, he was hugely indebted uh, for his the success of the, the Sun Also Rising. It was Fitzgerald that brought Hemingway to Scribner's uh, and, and, and sort of pulled him away from avant-garde little presses in, in, in France and got him to a what was relatively conservative firm, uh, Scribner's, uh, and, and, and made Hemingway's fortune. But... Uh, yeah. Hemingway had a had a notorious tendency to kick people who'd helped him up. A, I think Fitzgerald said something like that. You know, you help him up the ladder, and then he gives you a little kick along yeah, the yeah, way. Yeah. Well, you've definitely sold me on the Garden of Eden. So I'm gonna like yeah, even yeah, I, when I do. Yeah, I, I think yeah. there's, there's a, I, I think Hemingway's queerer in that regard if that's, uh, than than Fitzgerald. Uh, uh, and you'll certainly see that, especially the the, the role playing, the gender role playing. Yeah, I think maybe it's because I write about Whitman and Oscar Wilde. Like to me, there's a certain threshold of queerness. Yeah. But um, you know, when I do my exercising, I'm gonna find the audiobook of the Garden of Eden and just, you know, yeah, I'll give it quite, a try. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, but, and, and, um, and go back, go back to the Sun's Arises again. You know, just it, it's it's. Uh, I mean, we, we kind of read the Sun Rises differently in light of the Garden of Eden. I think when the Garden of Eden came out, it it it, it opened up new ways of thinking about. You're it. saying it created a type of critical wave. Yeah, yeah. How I we approach. So. I don't now. I don't follow all of it, but there is definitely some interesting work that's coming. And a lot of the best work on Hemingway in the last that I've read in the last 23 years, not that I've read a lot, it's all written by women critics too. There, there's a, yeah. So, well, and, and in your interest, something else that really intrigued me is why I think it's so important that students are exposed, but especially 
you know, from my vantage point as an instructor, we learned too, is The Great Gatsby was not the original title. And this kind of ties back to the Garden of Eden imagery with yeah. banquets and feasts. Like, what was the original title? Well, he was trying out a few titles. He was, he was going to call it Trimelchio, uh, which I don't think that sounds like a best-selling novel necessarily. My, my, my thinking is that you know, Trimelchio is this uh, former slave who becomes a, 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 who hosts these decadent banquets in Petronius's, Petronius was a Roman writer, wrote these satire called the, the, the Satyricon. Uh, it's a, it exists in fragments now. Uh, and it was published actually in 1923 by Bonnie and Livwright. Of course, this is the same publisher that's publishing Harlem Renaissance work, uh, Gene Toomer. And it was published in a kind of uh, um, limited edition. It, it, was, it, it was considered quite racy, uh, uh, you know, semi-pornographic even. It's very uh, sexual. And, and yeah, very sexual in a lot of ways. And Fitzgerald, but I think one of the things Fitzgerald was doing, like I think Petroni, uh, uh, uh is pretty pretentious title, uh, but it, but maybe Ulysses and the Wasteland were pretentious titles too, right? So you, you know, Fitzgerald's watching the literary scene, and here comes this book that you know people like Edmund Wilson are telling him this is really important called Ulysses, uh, you know, with this mythical title, uh, an elusive title, the Wasteland's an elusive title with all those notes at the end uh, to these sometimes, you know, obscure texts for a lot of people at the time. And I think Fitzgerald was uh, aligning his work with that. Uh, presumably his publishers didn't like, he was gonna call it Trimelchio, Trimelchio and West Egg, but the other title he was gonna call it was Under the Red, White and Blue, huh. right? So, uh, uh, so The Great Gatsby came kind of, a little bit later, and then I think he tried to change it at the last minute. I understand from Matthew Bricoli's introduction, uh, he was he tried to change it, and they you know stop, and they just went with the Great Gatsby. And and it's hard for us to think of it as anything other than the Great Gatsby now. But I like the Great Gatsby because to me it's the it's it's a it's a showbiz title, right? It's you know it, it, yeah, you say that lights, and I think that's one of the things that's about Gatsby. It's it's his, it's his gaudiness. It's mm. he, he vulgar, um, but there's something uh, so. As I, I, one way I put it in an essay I wrote, like he, he's a fake. Nick figures out he's a, he's a fake, but he's there's something so sincere about his fakeness. He can yeah, he's like P.T. Barnum. It's like the greatest showman. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like that title for that reason. I mean, he's associated with Coney Island. He says, let's go to Coney Island. Mm. Nick, point. Uh, he's got Broadway actors. This is a, this is a, this is a roadhouse that is you know populated by denizens of Broadway, which is you know what uh, Great Neck was. At the time, uh, there's movie stars there, uh, even though, of course, they, 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 the star system sort of emerges over the you know, over the 20s, mm -hmm. uh, as we come to know it. But yeah. so he is associated with that, like American popular culture and then, you know, big lights, gaudiness, loud jazz bands and, you know, colors all over the place. Uh, uh, so I like that title. And Under the Red, White and Blue aligns it too much with this kind of American, like the meaning of America theme, which, again, yeah. students like to, to like. Uh, but Trimelchio would, I think, I wonder how it would have done if it was called Trimelchio. I mean, presumably enough pe people would have got to the book and said it's really, really good. And uh, all, the re all the reasons I talked about for its success uh, might have uh, helped it succeed anyways. But Or maybe uh, they I, thought I, it would be as um, objectionably sexual, which it really isn't. Like The Great Gatsby, when you think of it, doesn't have sex scenes. No, There's no, nothing no. explicit. Fitzgerald hardly ever does. He's, mm -hmm. he's he, he, you know, though it does, you know, it, it, there's a scene where Tom Buchanan, uh, he goes off into the bedroom with Myrtle Wilson, 
right? which is actually you know, is quite rude. He takes Nick up there and you sit down, they go off into the bedroom uh, and Fitz, Fitzgerald worried in a couple of letters to Maxwell Perkins, his editor, he thought, oh, you know, is that too raw? I think that was the word he used. Is that mm. something that's going to you know, you know, get me in, get me in trouble? Because so, so he saw that as quite sexually explicit. Uh, but you're right. Uh, I don't think Trimalchio would have, um, most people wouldn't even know what it meant. Right. So I don't think uh, that that would have signaled any kind of sexual explicitness. But Fitzgerald, again, usually isn't uh, sexually explicit. Uh, it's, and, and when he, he always worried, I think there's a scene in Tender as the Night, of course, the couple is Dick Diver and Nicole Diver are splitting their marriages on the rocks. And one, you know, and he, he makes a rather vulgar comment like, I, I, um, I'm tired of making love to dry loins. It's quite, a, it's kind of an <laughs> ugly comment that you imagine two, you know, angry <laughs> people, uh, you know, one making to the other. And, but Fitzgerald really worried about that after, you know, he thought, oh, that's maybe too crude and, and, and he really cared about uh, winning over, he wanted women readers. Um, and it was, so Trimelchio was the side of him that was gonna like to impress fellow writers uh, that I'm an important writer. He wanted so he could be talked about in the company of Joyce and Gertrude Stein and these writers that he kind of admired for being so experimental and not worrying about the market so much, even though they did in different ways. Uh, but he was very much a commercial mainstream writer who, who liked to sort of pretend he wasn't sometimes. Oh, yeah. And that meant, and, and one of the reasons he, he I mean, Gatsby sold about 20,000 copies, which is pretty good. Uh, I mean, it's not a bestseller, but, uh, you know, most books sell about three, 4,000 copies uh, in Fitzgerald's day, uh, the average book. Uh, so it sold, it didn't sell as badly as he liked to pretend, but he, once it didn't sell as much as he wanted it to, like hundreds of thousands, then he starts to worry, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Uh, and you see this in some of the letters that I included at the back of my edition. Uh, he worried about uh, the not being strong female characters, which is a complaint, you know, people mm -hmm. still sometimes level that he was not that good uh, at, at uh, uh, creating sort of fully developed uh, female characters. Uh, he tends to, you know, his stories are about male idealism and the male perspective kind of dominates, right? So, and, and it, it, I think I read somewhere uh, that when they made the Robert Redford Mia Farrow movie, uh, they, they, it was hard to actually find in the book dialogue for Gatsby and Daisy uh, being together. There's hardly any, any dialogue. So they actually had to lift some dialogue from other Fitzgerald stories, uh, you know, which have lots of stories about, you know, young men and young women falling in love and bantering back and forth, because there's actually not that much in the Gatsby, in the great Gatsby, even though, you know, they're, they're committing adultery. Clearly, we're supposed to assume they're uh, sleeping together again, maybe, and, and, and we know if we're reading carefully that uh, they slept together before marriage. Uh, you know, Gats one, one, one of the strange details I always find, you know, when we get Gatsby's background in chapter five, I think it is, I mean, we learn that he's Jimmy Gats and he was, you know, a young hoodlum along the shore and he gets picked up by this guy, Dan Cody. Uh, and, and these are people are gonna really show him life, right? I mean, they're going, they're hanging around bordellos and that. And, and, and the line is uh, Gatsby knew women early. Uh, and we get the sense, this is a guy who, you know, women, easy come, easy go. He's a very handsome young man. Uh, and it doesn't quite uh, fit with the image of the Jay Gatsby who falls in love with this woman and, and makes a kind of, uh, uh, um, he, he's following a grail, we're told later on. He idealizes her so much. But, but later on in chapter eight, when we get a reconstruction, another, you know, the novel kind of works in, in, in fragments. 
you get bits and pieces of the story. And toward the end, Gatsby, this is after everything has fallen apart, Gatsby has confided to Nick and told him more about the background. And, and we're told that he he took Daisy one night. You know, so we've got, we've got a scene where Gatsby mm. kisses Daisy for the first time under the moonlight. And it's this crucial moment when all his dreams, or he still holds on to his dream before he kind of incarnates them. And that's the word that they use into Daisy. But then we get another version of that later on, which is, you know, Gatsby took Daisy. And that's that's fairly crude for Fitzgerald uh, to say that. Uh, he's not gonna he's not gonna say anything cruder than that, but it, that's pretty it's pretty blunt and direct. Uh, that he 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 slept with this you know perfect southern girl, uh, and and she's obviously uh, willing to sleep with him. I mean it's not it's not a I don't think it's a, it's a rape or anything like that. She this is this is a new woman. Uh, uh, the the war the the war situation is changing mores. This is something Fitzgerald wrote about in some of his essays. Uh, so so there's 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 some contradictions there between Gatsby the the romantic idealist lover you know following a grail. Uh, since he's kissed Daisy, now they belong together forever. And then the others, there's another side where Gatsby is, you know, an elegant young roughneck, as Nick calls him. I, you know, I, underneath this gentleman is the elegant young roughneck, who's, you know, had had women early, uh, which is not Fitzgerald, uh, you know. But this is, I think, there's, it's a, it's 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 the it's it's a something Fitzgerald maybe fantasized about being, you know. That's I think he tended to imagine Hemingway was that kind of guy. Uh, but you know, there's he there there is that side of Gatsby which tends to get forgotten after first or second readings. Again, when you, one of those things you discover as you're reading again, well, this he's not so innocent. He's not a virgin uh, when he meets Daisy or anything like that. And and of course, she's not a virgin when she marries Tom. Uh, and and part of this, of course, again, Fitzgerald was registering those changing sexual mores as uh, Edith Wharton would later on, especially in her novels of the twenties too. Right, things were changing. So yeah, well, yeah. and. I, what I always come back to in The Great Gatsby is how they do not know the New York fabric society at all. And like, talk about Wharton and Fitzgerald. Like, to me, that's their major difference is Fitzgerald is a transplant to the North. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. all of them in the, Gats the Great Gatsby are as well. Because, you know, you had me, because I'm going back to The Great Gatsby to prepare for our talk. And there really is no understanding of the characters in the Long Island towns. Like they're never really meeting other neighbors or like part of the other society families. They're always fleeing to Manhattan. And I find that a really interesting phenomenon. And even the even the parties, like there's no friendships formed at the party. It's just a big mm -hmm. wild party where anyone can show up uh, because Gatsby's Got this reputation for throwing these these wild parties, which are really just you know big spectacles to attract Daisy's attention ultimately, and hopefully get her over there. But yeah, there's no sense of community there, uh, and and these are all, they're all transients. I mean, and, and say all that you're right. Fitzgerald was a transient to New York. They tend you know well, and and he ends up meeting other writers, and most of these people tend to be transients as well. Uh, unlike Wharton, as I say, who was you know born and bred to old New York and and, and you know, saw that society grow uh from her perspective you know where you know, she, she, you know she would uh, grow up on what was once the kind of wealthy part of the city and then keep moving away as you know the immigrants were coming up island uh, and 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 uh, the city the city was expanding right so you know Morton's kind of moving northward and then eventually leaving but so, yeah you're, I mean Fitzgerald writes very elegantly about New York City 
as a transient. You know, like, I, mean, I still love that line. The first look at the of, of the city coming over the Queensboro Bridge. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like it's starting all over again. I mean, we we get a kind of reenactment of that image of the the Dutch sailors coming and seeing Long Island for the first time. Uh, you know, going over the Queensboro Bridge is like seeing the city for the first time. Uh, he was hovering over Daisy about to kiss her for the first time. He loves those kind of moments where there's a sort of suspension, uh, where a suspended moment where uh, everything imaginatively wonderful about that is present before you know reality sets in. Yeah. You know, so he's coming over the bridge to New York and then next thing you know, he's in a seedy little uh, speakeasy meeting, talking to Wolfsheim, for example. And that's that, that's that kind of juxtaposition that I think he gets from Elliot. But, but you're right. Yeah, no, no. The, the transient. The, there is no really any kind of community there. They're just all. They're all. We were all Midwesterners, which uh, Nick says at one point at the end. We were all. We were all Western. We weren't suited for New York City. And that. I'm not sure what he means by. It's, it's an odd statement because again, Daisy's a Southerner, but I guess there. It's just uh, we weren't New Yorkers. Uh, mm-hmm. And isn't Tom from the Midwest? He's Chicago. Yeah. He, he's yeah. From. Uh, yeah, yeah. The rich. Uh, 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 a. a very wealthy Chicago suburb, the one that uh, Fitzgerald's first big love, Ginevra King, was from. Uh, I forget the name right now, but it's certainly, it, uh, uh, I can't remember. But Not Winnetka. No, no. Um, okay, but probably something along the water. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah, northern yeah. area. Yeah, but again, like they live... They're supposed to be living in East Egg, which is the more established, you know, money line. But even they're not from that kind of society. So I think that's why maybe we keep returning. They just pick up and move. They all pick up yeah. and move, right? And that's where the you know, next thing you know, at the end we hear Nick and Daisy went to Europe for a while. Like, yeah. they, they, there's, they're, they're not rooted at all. That's you know, mm-hmm. Fitzgerald's characters generally aren't, right? So, and that's the, that's the kind of irony about. There's a kind of irony uh, that Fitzgerald builds into the novel when we've got. Um, you know, Tom Buchanan ranting about the rise of the colored people and all these immigrants coming in. There's this kind of anti-immigrant theme announced by Nick, but they're all transients in some ways, right? So that, that you know, the image of the African-Americans coming over the bridge, you know, again, we can, one of the things my edition helps us to do is sort of tie this to the Harlem mm-hmm. Renaissance, to the popularity of some, so, you know, black musical reviews from that time and, and, and the great migration, you know, the story implicit in that story of, of African-Americans coming from the South of the city, other people coming to the city for opportunities, just like Nick, you know, goes East for opportunities. Uh, but it's, it makes this, you know, the, the, the city seems to be this kind of unreal place. And that kind mm-hmm. of folks, Elliot, unreal city, that uh, image he takes from Baudelaire and Dante, uh, and there is something kind of unreal about the city, you know, manufactured with white heaps of sugar lump, or I think it's some image like that that Fitzgerald uses. Uh, but nobody is very rooted in this in this novel. You're right. Yeah. Well, and the bookmark I'm using as I, you know, am going through your edition is "So We Beat On." You know, uh, yeah. that very infamous quote: "Votes against yeah. the current," Moving. and Moving. it is. But it's this very. Um, almost automation or mechan- kind of mechanization of just yeah. going through the motions on and on and on. And I think you're right. You really can't grasp the setting of The Great Gatsby on purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah. You know, Nick, Nick says my favorite childhood memory, or my well, memories of his youth. You know, he, he has that one, wonderful passage about going home at Christmas time from college or the prep schools. And, and that's when I, when I was most in touch with this country was 
was when he's on the train, he's, he's in motion, right? And the word restless is used all the time. Or certainly pretty frequent, it's one of the frequent words, restless. Uh, and, 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 and Tom Buchanan has, 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 has this restlessness. He's always, and, and Nick, Nick imagines him sort of dreaming about going back to some uh, um, football game, the, 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 the perfect moment in some football game or whatever. Uh, and, that, and Fitzgerald's characters are always haunted by this ideal past that they're trying to recuperate or recapture in some ways. And, you know, again, epitomized by Gatsby trying to yeah. kick can't repeat the past. Well, of course you can. And that's, but Fitzgerald's characters are kind of caught with it. And, and that, that beating, uh, you know, uh, beating on against the current in a way we're, we're, we're still trying to do what those original Dutch sailors did, but, and we just keep getting brushed back in the path. The further we go on, the, the farther life is behind us, you know, that's a, and I, I, I say, I call that a kind of romantic irony in Fitz, Fitzgerald. We can't, but do that. Um, so Fitzgerald's not a, you know, pure pessimist, but he's certainly undermining the kind of optimistic faith in you know, America's capacity to allow people to make themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. that, and that I think myth. it's, and I think that's what I know my students remarked on, but why so many who read your edition, it's that American anxiety. Like there's just so much anxiety that Fitzgerald is weighing within the great Gatsby. Um, yeah. And well, like you're saying, it sounds like if I if I picture Fitzgerald, I just see him moving around frantically, like not feeling very settled. Yeah, I mean, there, 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 there's some truth to that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I always also picture him just a side that we don't think about much, just sitting down for hours and hours and hours and writing. He was an extremely prolific writer. So he obviously mm-hmm. was a very disciplined in some ways, but yeah, he, you know, he never owned a home. Uh, you know, again, his he lived till forty four, but we, you know, he he moves from the west to the east. Uh, he he uh, uh, he did live in different places in New York City, but then he, you know, he marries. He goes to Europe. He went to Europe three times. He comes back. He goes to Baltimore. He went to Hollywood three times. Yeah, so it's there's a it's a very peripatetic life, I think, that he had, uh, and and never really rooted. You're right. You know, he's. Uh, and, and, and that gets reflected in his writing. I think it's stories about people, you know, seeking to, to make themselves and finding themselves deeply unsatisfied. There's a, you know, lost, he said the great Gatsby was about lost illusions. It's, 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 it, it, um, that, that the Fitzgerald story is, is about, you know, being young and having these goals for yourself uh, and, and, and setting out to realize them and then realizing them and finding them kind of hollow or empty or, you know, that, that, that seems to be a recurring theme that, uh, in, in Fitzgerald. And I mean, he once said, uh, I think it was April, April, 2020, when, you know, Zelda initially had rejected him because she didn't think he was going to be very successful. And then he got his novel published and, and, and she married him three weeks later. And, and, and so within three weeks, he, he married Zelda. His first novel got published. He's 24. He's, he, he, he talks about in one of his essays, riding on the top of a double-decker bus in Manhattan and starting to cry because he realized this was the happiest day of his life and everything was going to be downhill after that. And it's a typical Fitzgerald thing to say, right? Like, you know, uh, and, and, I knew, and I always think of Nick Carraway just realizing in the middle of the night, oh, my, it's my birthday. And he didn't realize it. And then he's turned 30. And, and again, it's like, it's all, it's all downhill from here. And he has this sort of eloquent description of all the things he has to look forward to. And it just, it, it, it doesn't sound terribly appealing, right? So Yeah, yeah. Well, so as we're, you know, we're nearing our end, you know, I want to ask you, what do you really hope? Because I think it's testament to 
you know, how quickly this discussion um, happened that your footnotes are imbued with all of this information that you hold. Um, but what do you really hope that readers, they are students, instructors, also the public who wants to know more? This is an excellent addition for any enthusiast of The Great Gatsby to see all of the footnotes and learn about the references. So yeah, what would you hope your reader really takes away from this edition? I don't necessarily have, I, you know, want readers to take away any particular point. I just, I, I think it, it's to help readers appreciate how, on the one hand, how embedded Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby is in its day, you know, and, and you know, a lot of work doing the footnotes because he's, there's a lot of references to topical events and you know, actual magazines and actual buildings and places. Uh, so so it, it's a very much down on the ground novel in that, re in that respect, also quite elusive. Uh, you know, Fitzgerald was was much better read than I think he got characterized by by some of his uh, uh, um, so-called so well, they were friends, but they also liked to belittle him sometimes. Uh, Edmund Wilson, in particular, I think, could sometimes disparage him. Uh, but he he knew a lot, and I but I also think it uh, it helps to frame the you know conversations about race in the Great Gatsby or consumerism I think it you know I'm giving some documents that help to contextualize that so you know probably one that I think many many students and, and, and instructors will find interesting today is the one about the race in the national culture that mm -hmm. there was a book called the, the rising tide of color of the, of the colored empires or, or, the, or you know with a title similar I think the um, actual actual title was um uh, and, I, and, I, and I got sections of this, uh, the rising tide of color against world, white world supremacy. So there was this, you know, you know white, white nationalism, as we would call it today, or white internationalism. Uh, and this was very respectable. This is one thing. I mean, we're seeing this today, obviously, and, you know, coming out of your country. Uh, uh, and, and I remember even 30 years, you know, Patrick Buchanan was making the kind of arguments uh, that people were making in the 20s and publishing with very respectable presses like Scribner's and putting an anti-immigration law. So... I think this helps to show that Fitzgerald was aware of that. And, and probably one of the more controversial uh, things I put in the book was um, passages from Henry Ford's anti-Semitic writings. Mm. Remember, you know, anti Henry Ford, of course, the great car manufacturer, was also an anti-Semitic in his spare time and a fan of Hitler's, and Hitler was a fan of his. Uh, and he, he wrote these anti-Semitic tracts. And, and, and I, I remember looking at these in the New York Public Library, uh, and I, I actually see in the, the uh, there's, a, there's a room devoted to, to um, Jewish writing and, and, and Jewish history. Uh, but one of the things that was really striking for me, and I put this in the book, is uh, Henry Ford's diatribe against jazz, which he associated with Jews, uh, you know, Jewish jazz. Jewish jazz becomes the national music. And, and, and he has a, a, a big diatribe against Arnold Rothstein, who fixed, who was, who was behind the fixing or supposedly behind the fixing of the World Series in 1919. And he was the model for Wolfsheim in the novel. Uh, and again, Fitzgerald seems to be satirizing Tom Buchanan, but he's also, uh, he's certainly not depicting Wolfsheim in a favorable light. Uh, and, and so there was a certainly kind of casual anti-Semitism, which, uh, you know, Edith Wharton was guilty of, uh, Fitzgerald was guilty of, even though they, they have Jewish friends, that kind of thing. So I, so I uh, but a lot of this stuff was quite things that we're talking about today. It was very much in the air back then, and I think Fitzgerald does incorporate it. And I think this edition helps people to. And I'm not necessarily saying Fitzgerald went and read Henry Ford and took these ideas. But it was just so much in the air, and Fitzgerald really had uh, very vibrant antennas, and he was really picking up a lot of mm -hmm. what was going on. He 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 
he was he was I know he was a C student and some of his intellectual friends as they disparage him sometimes but I think he was a very very smart person uh, yeah. really good ear for dialogue uh, really good sense of what people were wearing how they were talking uh, you know the colors uh, what shows were on what kind of stories were popular and this kind of you know racial rhetoric he would have picked up picked up on that uh, yeah. and and. He, he makes that part of his story. So, but, you know, I, I, I know that there's some fashionable interpretations out there, you know, Gatsby is black or Gatsby is Jewish, he's passing and those kind of things. I don't, I think that's going too far. Uh, I think, I think he's associated with some of those things in the novel. Uh, but, you know, again, so that's, that's part of what's going, but there's also other things that it said, the novel was quite satirical and I put in some very satirical writings. There was, you know, uh, prohibition was a joke uh, for most people. There's this humorous, uh, um, newspaper satires from the New York Times, uh, Vanity Fair essays, just to show what that world was like in 1922. Uh, and the laughing at American Puritanism and the laughing at American, you know, even, you know, the, the racism was being mocked by people like Mencken, even though we know Mencken also harbored uh, what we think of today as racist views. So, so it's, you know, I, people can take different things away from it, but, but yeah. it, it does, you know, uh, uh, help give a kind of deeper description of the world Fitzgerald was describing in that kind of poetic way that I talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, so you I really show the context. And, um, you know, I know what I'm definitely going to do when I teach The Great Gatsby again is not only just use your edition, but do what I did last semester, which is then accompany it with Nella Larson's passing to actually see what is it like for a black woman writer of the Harlem Renaissance like that F. Scott Fitzgerald doesn't stand for marginalized communities and I don't think no. he should <laughs> and no, he's not right. the final voice like there are Jewish writers of the time to read yeah. Yeah. and I include I include in the uh in in this a, a, a chapter from Annie Jerska's mm. uh, novel Bread, Bread Givers and 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 it's I don't think he read her but I bet she read him mm. and read his stories because he was, he was a popular magazine so was she uh, and and it's almost like a it, it, it's like a because you know remember Gatsby Nick thinks of Gatsby as someone who could have grown up on the Lower East Side and mm. that's code for he's you know like a Jewish immigrant and and she was a Jewish immigrant who grew up on the Lower East Side and her story is about going west you know going to a college town mm. and the chapter I picked out it reads to me like a, a, a Jewish girl walking into a Fitzgerald story and seeing it from that perspective mm. and it's something like Nella Larson's passing. I don't think he read that. I don't think he read many of the Harlem Renaissance writers. Some people would disagree with me, but I don't see any evidence for that. Uh, but they probably read him. Uh, you know, there's a kind of asymmetry here. Uh, but it doesn't matter if they did. She, she's telling the same kind of stories. Uh, you know, they're, they're writing about Harlem. They're writing about the contemporary scene. Uh, they're writing about people trying to make it. Uh, in, in, in that case, you know, for a very racialized uh, and racist society. So I think I, I would. I I hope this edition encouraged you know, fits in well with classes mm -hmm. where we do have a, a, a broader understanding of the 20s than just Fitzgerald, Hemingway, and Faulkner. We've got Nella Larson, we've got Yezierska, uh, we've got, um, I mean, James Weldon Johnson's autobiography, that's a little bit earlier, but it got republished in 1927. Uh, also a novel, I've seen some interesting essays written uh, about uh, in conjunction with Gatsby. So I'm hoping people will do that. I'm also hoping that, uh, I, I, that people will read the letters Fitzgerald wrote about the great Gatsby because he really was trying to, he, he was very competitive. He was, I, I, he was trying to write the great American novel, uh, which was a phrase that was being passed around. You know, William Carlos Williams writes a piece in 1923 called the great American novel. And, and uh, it's interesting to the, the, the care with which he um, put the book together and, and, and the revisions he did and the way he responded to uh, Maxwell Perkins's 
um, suggestions for change. He made some very, very dramatic changes to the galleys, which is very expensive, uh, reversed moved some chapters around. Uh, and, and you can, you know, if you look at, there, there is a, a Cambridge University Pre Press uh, edition of Trimalchial, which was the early version before the changes that got made in the galleys. Mm. And, and uh, mm. but I think that long letter from Perkins and then Fitzgerald's response, the changes made, it's, it, that would be interesting for students to see. Cause we sometimes think of The Great Gatsby as this perfect novel. Uh, and it's, it, it is, you know, it, it's pretty perfect. But uh, some of its perfections owe a lot to Perkins's comments that Fitzgerald you know, uh, made some really substantial changes, uh, partly by uh, taking the story out of Gatsby's mouth, but also moving scenes around. Uh, and, then, and then Fitzgerald really cared about the reception. So I mentioned his worrying about uh, women not liking the novel enough and writing mm -hmm. to some women about that. So that's something I hope people would look at as well. And I think, you know, Fitzgerald fans, a lot of them know this stuff already, uh, but I think for people just who you know maybe read the novel once or twice or reading a class uh, they'll, they'll appreciate how how carefully he, he knew he'd written something really good but he put a lot of a lot of work into this and and uh had, had and cared very much about how about the form of the novel you know he really wanted to write something that was much more much formally tighter and more controlled than his earlier more autobiographical novels yeah well you do such a good job illustrating all of that um Thank so you. I am encouraging all to get your hands on Dr. Nowlin's um, Great Gatsby second edition um, published in 2022 with Broadview Press. And um, I'm going to say bye to you, but I'm going to stick on for those who are watching the video because I want to show Dr. Nowlin some treats of the Great Gatsby. So thank you so much, Dr. Nowlin. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. Thank you all for listening to A Great Gatsby Party with Dr. Michael Nowlin. Thank you, Michael. And I left you on the edge of your seat. So you have to head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. You didn't think I was going to show you all of the Roaring Twenties gems. Just like Jay Gatsby, Certain people are invited to our Ivory Tower Boiler Room Great Gatsby Party. But what I'm going to do is all of the videos that are up on our Patreon, they're available now at the beginning tier. So please, please become a Bookworm member. The Bookworm member is $5 a month. And of course, please feel free to join at our higher levels. I will say if you become an Ivory Tower member, you then get our merchandise, which includes if you've been looking at our social media from our incredible pen and brush poetry reading event that happened last weekend. Shout out to pen and brush. That was incredible. We can't wait for our next open mic poetry event with you all. It's going to happen again. Um, you'll see that we have a lot of merchandise on the table. So if you do become an Ivory Tower Patreon, you unlock our mug, our t-shirt, our tote bag. So please, who doesn't want some Ivory Tower Boiler Room merch? I also really, really want to thank the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team without whom none of this would be possible. So yes, I am Andrew Rimby, Um, but I want to thank Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, and our true crime and academia host, um, 
catch her new episode tomorrow on Tuesday. Her True Crime and Academia comes out. Also, Jaren Usta, our marketing director. Thank you, Jaren. You'll notice that Jaren has been creating such exciting clips on our Instagram. And I want to thank our two interns, Kimberly Dallas and Nicole Arguello, who have both been amazing at episode editing, um, helping with posters on our social media. So this is an incredible team. I'm so grateful to you all out there. And I also want you all to follow us on social media. So we have an Instagram, we have TikTok, we have Facebook, and we have Twitter. Yes, we have almost, I think we have almost all the social media accounts. There might be one that I don't have yet. Uh, so <laughs> let's see if there'll be more. But for now, just follow us at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And our Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. Also, we have an email address. It is ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. Very easy um, to remember. I love hearing from all of you, so send a message. I check the email account. I'll get back to you. Also, if you have any interview suggestions or maybe you represent an artist, reach out to me. I am always curious for suggestions. I also really highly want to encourage you all to check out Anne Sophie Anderson on Instagram. She is the one behind almost all of our music, unless I'm choosing a Broadway musical song. But Lover Man is... Thanks to Anne Sophie Anderson, the music you've heard in this episode that really brought us into the Roaring Twenties feel. And Megan Ames was also behind Loverman. So thank you both. And Anne Sophie Anderson's music appears on True Crime and Academia. Um, so check her out on Instagram. And I hope you all out there are doing well and sending you all empowering creative energy. Can't wait for you all to join us next week in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Bye, everyone. Oh